If you were hoping to hear a great sermon today on a riveting topic, I'm sorry to disappoint you, uh, but I'll be preaching on the end of the world. So if that is less than what you expected, feel free to get up and leave and go do something more riveting. Uh, but <laughs> Jesus, Jesus talked about the end of the world. Uh, and <laughs> we're going through the teachings of Jesus, and Jesus decided to talk about the end of the world, which makes it really nerve-wracking for me, because the passage we're going to cover today, many scholars think, is the hardest passage to interpret in the New Testament. So I'm thrilled to be able to unlock all its secrets for you uh, here today. <laughs> but I'm just very humbled by it, very excited by it, and still quite confused by it all, um, <laughs> honestly. But I want to give you kind of a a little intro here before we get into the text. You have to understand something going into this message. You are living in what the Bible calls the end times. It's all you've ever known. You were born and raised in the period the Bible describes as the end times. Now, there's the end times in general. That's your world. You've known no different. But then there's the end of the end. All right, and Jesus today talks about the end of the end. How do we know we're living in the end times? Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, we'll put that up on the screen. It says this. Now, these things happened to them, that's Old Testament saints, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. Listen, on whom the end of ages has come. We're, the, we're in the end of ages, biblically. The, the end, the final chapter. It's very exciting. James 5.8 says this, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. His return is near. Revelation 22.20 says this, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming. What's the word you see there? Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. So, So we're in the end of the ages. The coming of the Lord is near. Jesus says, I'm coming soon, meaning our generation is the closest generation to the end of the end than any generation before us. You're in the end times in general, but you're also approaching the end of the end. Last week, if you remember, Jesus, when his disciples asked what the signs are going to be of the end, do you remember what he told them to do? He told them to calm down. And he first shared with them there's going to be some false alarms. There's going to be people trying to get you all worked up. Calm down. But then after he calmed them down, said you'll even see earthquakes and famines and war. Calm down. Then he freaked them out. (laughs) Then he calmed them down again. (laughs) So, So last week I calmed you down. This week I'm going to freak you out. And then next week, I'm going to calm you down again. Okay? Okay. (laughs) Jesus talks to those who are living in the end, that's us, in a general sense. He talks to them today about the end of the end. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word together and get ready for the end of the world. Lord Jesus, thank you that you deal with these Topics that are hard to understand. Thank you that you told us in advance what was coming. And though we don't know all the details, you want your people ready. So get us ready. Show us why we should get ready today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, open up to Mark chapter 13, verse 14. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. And as you turn there, Know that we are just continuing on from a sermon Jesus preached called the Olivet Discourse. We started it last week, and we're just continuing it now. Jesus says, oh, you know, you're going to face persecution, but if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. Then he starts to describe uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And I'll read in verse 14 where it says this. Mark 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be 
Such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I've told you all things beforehand. Hey, when it comes to getting ready for the end, why would I do that? You know, write this down. We've got to get ready because the end is already written. Write that down. The end is already written. Uh, He wants you to know that the end of the story is coming. It's already written so you can be ready for it. If you're honest, you don't spend your days thinking about the end of the world. Am I right? You're like, yeah, I'm trying to potty train my toddler. What, What time do I have to think about the coming tribulation. You know, I'm just trying to get the laundry done and I'm supposed to be thinking about how the world's going to end. I got to get the kids to the softball field, you know, like we really don't spend a ton of time thinking with expectation of the end of the world. Jesus wants to change that. And in fact, he wants you to know where your entire life and human history is going. Now, when it comes to the end times, before we deal with what he's talking about here, let me share a chart with you to just give you the broad brush strokes. Here's the broad brush strokes. If this font is too small for you, just know that we put every sermon online each week. You could go on the website, listen to this whole thing again. You can watch the sermon. There's a lot that's going to come at you today, so if you need to see it again, go to the website. But here's the broad brush stroke events, the headlines of the end times. First, the cross happens. Jesus died. He was buried, he rose again, and he ascended in triumph to the right hand of the Father. The church age began after that, and that includes the whole period in between uh, Christ and, and when, he, uh, when the seven-year tribulation happens. Now, in our church, our elders unanimously believe that there is going to be a literal seven-year tribulation period on this earth that's filled with awful things happening on the planet. Some churches don't believe that. Some scholars don't believe, they don't think it's going to be exactly seven years. You know what? That's fine. Maybe you don't believe that. There's people who know their Bible a lot better than I do who say, yeah, it's not going to be exactly seven years. Okay, fine. But we just want you to know that we have the belief that it is going to be a literal seven-year period in the future. Now, the rapture is an event described in Scripture where Jesus gathers his people unto himself, meet him in the air, right? Now, some Christians believe that happens at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. How many of you read the Left Behind series? Raise your hand if you ever read that. Okay, that represents, it's called pre-trib rapture. Okay, but listen, it's just a guess. We don't know if that's when it's going to happen. You read a best-selling guess. (laughs) It was enjoyable, all right, but it's not guaranteed that that's when it happens. Some Christians, we even have some elders here who believe the rapture will happen at the beginning of the tribulation. But we have people in Harvest World, even Pastor James, our founding pastor, who thinks it's going to happen toward the middle of the tribulation. My opinion, everyone say opinion. Say opinion. My opinion is that the rapture is going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation, meaning we have to be ready to go through it. But guess what? I don't know. You don't know. Who knows? But we believe there is going to be a literal seven-year tribulation. At the end of that time, we know Jesus is going to return in glory And uh, then he'll rule the earth for what's called the millennial kingdom. That's going to last a thousand years, the Bible says. And then there'll be one last uprising of humanity against Christ. God will put that out real fast. That's when the Bible says earth and sky will flee from his presence. There will then a new heaven and a new earth will exist. The final judgment will happen. And then the eternal state, what you've known called heaven, will begin. We'll leave that up there for a second. This is basically the broad brush strokes of what the Bible says happens between now and eternity. We have to get ready for that. We have to get ready for that because it's already written, these things are coming, and we want to make sure that we're not caught off guard. Jesus said in verse uh, 23, be on guard, I've told you all things beforehand. That's also, he uses words like stay awake, you don't fall asleep, Uh, be on guard, be alert. We're not supposed to be like, nobody ever told me this was going to happen. Get ready, because the end is already written. Now the question here is, what is Jesus actually talking about? When he says in verse 14, look at verse 14, 
When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Remember in elementary school when you had a fire drill? The fire drill went off and the teacher said, Don't grab anything. Stand up. Go outside because the whole building's on fire. And you're like, I can't even go over and get my coat from the closet. Not even your coat. You get up and you walk outside and then you freeze to death instead of burning to death. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't sound like a good plan. Okay, last week Jesus told the people, when you see this or that or this or that, calm down, calm down. And right here he says, when you start seeing these things, freak out! Don't even go back inside and get your coat! Just run! Run for the hills! He's like really telling them this is going to be urgent, which makes us wonder when. What is he talking about? My opinion, say opinion, is that verse 14 all the way through 31, the whole section I'm preaching today, my opinion, is that Jesus in this whole section is describing two identical twin events. You know identical twins, don't you? You know identical twins? If you describe identical twins, they resemble each other very closely on the outside. So as you're describing them, you're almost describing both of them, right? Well, that kind of describes both of them. But they're two individuals, which means they're significantly different, right? So in Jesus, through this passage, as he's talking, he's describing two events, one that happens in the disciples' day, one that happens in the distant future. Okay, they're identical twin events which means they resemble each other very closely, but they're two completely different events. And as he's talking, you kind of got to figure out, well, okay, he's talking about both. Oh, now he's talking about this. One. Oh, that sounds like this. One. Now he's talking about both again. And he's describing both. That's my opinion. So when he says in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, let the reader understand. This phrase, abomination of desolation, uh, is a very well understood in Jesus' day phrase that comes from the Old Testament. It refers to what the Bible would call an antichrist. An antichrist. Abomination of desolation. Um, we find out in the New Testament, one of the things we have to get ready for is the antichrist who will come will be loved by the world. Jesus has to warn them about it. And then in verse 22, he says, Verse 21, he says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The Antichrist who's going to come is going to be a false Christ. So write this down. Here's number two. Number one is the end is already written. Get ready. Two, the world will love the Antichrist. You need to get prepared for that. The world will love the Antichrist. Jesus and the New Testament consistently cast this character as one of the most internationally beloved per people who's ever lived on the face of the world. They love him. He's amazing. He, he reminds me of, of, of Jesus. He's so, the Bible kind of says he's going to like die and even come back to life miraculously. Like, Whoa, we thought he was dead. He's back. He's so awesome. They're going to love him, and there's going to be, it says even the elect are going to be tempted to be deceived, meaning there's going to be church people who are like, I just love him. What he's doing for the world is just so good. Oh, I'm tearing up. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You see, so he's giving us a warning about this person who we will know as the Antichrist. The truth is this. The Antichrist, when he comes, is not going to look like, if you saw Fantastic Four, he's not going to look like Dr. Doom. Okay? It's not like he's going to show up wearing this iron mask and being like, follow me, all of you. I'm good. I'm good. Just follow me, and I will lead you to the promised land. And everyone's like, oh, he looks scary, but maybe we should trust him. That's not the way it's going to go down. Okay? He's going to be loved. He's going to be messianic. He's going to do some things people aren't, they don't do. It's like miraculous. Okay, but this phrase has some history to it. Because, like I said, Jesus is not just talking to us about the future. He's also talking about his day. There would also be some sort of abomination of desolation in his day. Not necessarily the Antichrist, but one of them. Okay, he says, many false messiahs, false prophets will come. 
So to give you a little history of this abomination of desolation, there's actually three antichrists talked about, called out in Scripture. The first antichrist is described by Daniel in Daniel's, if you want to write this down, chapter 9, 11, and 12. 9, 11, and 12. And Daniel talks about this antichrist who's going to come. He calls him this abomination who causes desolation. And you have to understand that this phrase, abomination of desolation, refers to a person and an act. It's a person who does something in the temple in Jerusalem. It's called an abomination, and then it causes desolation. So it's a person who does something in a specific place. Now, the first Antichrist, most scholars agree, would be the Syrian general Antiochus IV, who in 168 B.C., so again, this is history. Jesus is giving his disciples a little flashback. They would have known what he's talking about. 168 B.C., this general Antiochus IV arrived in Jerusalem. He killed the high priest. He killed saints. He stopped temple worship. All sorts of sinful things were offered on the altar, like pigs and forbidden animals. He uh, burned copies of the Old Testament. He put up a statue of Zeus in God's temple. And then he issued coins that the local people had to use. And on the coins, he had a picture of himself. And it said, God manifest. Behold. Called himself God. Okay, that was the first Antichrist. He did something in 168 B.C. that the people of Israel would never forget. It was the abomination that caused desolation and persecution. Now, Jesus is drawing from that phrase, and he's taking that, and now he's bringing it to his disciples, and he's now describing something that's going to happen in their day, which is the second Antichrist. How do we know that happened? Well, Luke 21, which is a parallel passage, Jesus says, when you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, you'll know this is about to happen. So again, it was a military thing and a military leader. We don't know for sure, but we think that he's referring to the Roman general Titus who showed up after a Jewish uprising, laid siege to Jerusalem, and in A.D. 70, he invaded the city, destroyed the temple, and a Gentile even entering the temple defiled it. It would be an abomination. Entering the temple defiled it, destroyed it, burned it, tore it down. The siege of Jerusalem was awful. Here's all that's left of what was the Jerusalem temple. This is called the Wailing Wall. Uh, This once amazing temple, beautiful, uh, was all torn down. And now there's just a wall that once supported it. That's all that's left. Jesus was warning the disciples in advance, this is what's coming. There's going to be this guy who does this, this abomination that causes desolation. He was warning them when he says, get out, run, leave. He's like, don't stay in the city when this happens. And church historians say that the Christians did leave Jerusalem. When the siege came, they were like, we're getting out of here. They ran for the hills, okay? And and they survived. The rest of the Jews stayed in the city because they were assured, surely the Messiah would finally come to deliver them. But he didn't. So Jesus was telling them about this event that was about to happen in their day. The siege was awful. In AD 70, 1.1 million Jews died. Famine swept through the city. Starving mothers ate their own children. 100,000 Jews were taken captive when the city finally fell. Many were killed for sport in the Roman games, the Colosseum, or ended up becoming slaves. That was the second Antichrist. It was awful tribulation. But here's the thing. When you read through this, look at verse 19. Jesus is telling them you're going to want to run when this happens. But in verse 19, he says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And you're like, okay, like 8070 was bad, but it doesn't sound like it was that bad. It's not like, oh, it's worse than it's ever been before and it'll never be that bad again. You're like, uh, it was bad, but like there's been worse, like the Holocaust. So, Here's where you see, as he's discussing identical twin events, he's talking about what's going to happen in their day in AD 70, but he's also talking about what's going to happen in the end, which is going to be even worse. In fact, it says in verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, again, talking about the future Antichrist coming, no human being would be saved. Like extinction, if God doesn't step in and do something about it, that's how bad it's going to be. 
So the world is going to love the Antichrist. The first one Jesus drew from to describe the second one, which came in AD 70. But Jesus also is kind of looking ahead to the third one. This third Antichrist is going to be unique because the first two were not loved. They were kind of weird. Even their own people kind of didn't really like them. The third one is the one who's loved by the world. Um, The third one we know will be like a savior, a false messiah, a miracle worker, a political leader. He'll wield spiritual power to deceive. He'll have religious backing, um, but ultimately his power will come from Satan. He'll convince, he'll persuade, he'll be adored. The world will follow him. We know roughly what happens in this seven-year period through the Antichrist is he makes some sort of treaty with Israel, and then he kind of breaks that perhaps halfway through the tribulation. He enters the literal temple. He desecrates it. He declares himself to be some sort of a god. He puts an end to sacrifice. He makes war against the saints, and this all culminates with a great war at the end of the tribulation called Armageddon. Nations of the earth will finally try and conquer Israel once and for all, Israel will finally see their need and call upon Christ and be delivered. That's what we know. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says this, And then the lawless one will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, get this, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the power of his coming. The Antichrist is going to be loved by the world. We love, he's doing all these things. And he's going to try and kill all the Jews. Then Christ is going to show up and just be like, and he's gone. But that's alarming because nothing in this world will be able to stop him. So you got to be ready. The end is already written. The world will love the Antichrist. And Jesus says, don't be led astray. Don't be fooled. Don't cave. Don't put your hope in rulers of the world. Don't follow the crowd. You've got to watch out here. Okay, here's the third one. You want to get ready? You want to get ready for the end? You have to know this. Israel will be at the center. Israel will be at the center. If you don't understand this, you're going to miss most of what is going to happen because Israel will be at the center. In in verse 14 on, when it talks about run here, get out, go there, yes, that describes what's happening in AD 70 when General Titus came, but we also can um, assume from scriptures that that also describes during the seven-year tribulation what's going to go on in Israel. Israel is like the starring actor of the tribulation. And we have reason to believe that just as in AD 70, the Jews had to run for their lives. That's going to happen again. And the destruction of Jerusalem foreshadows the destruction of the world. And again, in the future, Israel is going to take center stage. I already showed you that it says in verse 19, it talks about how there's going to be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation. And Israel is going to be in the middle of it. There's going to be times where armies come again and surround them again. They've got to run again and they get defeated again. Okay? Now, how do we know that? Let me prove to you first that I think there is going to be a literal Israel that's going to take center stage in the tribulation. Uh, for example, in Revelation 11, there are two witnesses who are said to be preaching in the streets of Jerusalem, the city where the Lord was crucified. Okay, so these two witnesses will be hated by Israel and the world. They'll be given great power and they'll testify, hey, God's judgment is coming. So there has to be an Israel, right, for these two witnesses to be in Jerusalem testifying. Also, First Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says of the Antichrist, he'll oppose and exalt himself against every soul called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in where? The temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. It's really hard to make that symbolic. It most likely means he's really sitting in the real temple in Israel saying things about himself that he shouldn't say. Okay, and the Old Testament also seems to affirm that Israel will be in the middle of the end tribulation. In Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah chapter 12, there describes an initial defeat of God's people in the end where half of Jerusalem is exiled, plundered, the women are raped, Then God arrives to save Israel for good, saying, never again will they be in bondage. Well, that hasn't happened yet, so that's the end. There's going to be a defeat in Israel. You know, how can Israel get defeated if there's no Israel? How can the Antichrist come into the temple if there's no temple? So there kind of has to be an Israel for the end of the end to really unfold. Now that's a problem, because if Israel's going to be in the center There hasn't been an Israel for a very long time. Let me just share with you the story of Israel 
so you can be convinced that you are living in unprecedented Bible times. All right, you ever sit around, well, how doesn't anything like that ever happen in my life? I want Bible events to take place in my life. Okay, let me show you what's happened. After Israel was defeated in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. It wasn't until A.D. 130 that they rose up again and Rome kicked them out of Jerusalem. That's it, you're out. No more Jews allowed. Then they allowed them to trickle back in. Jesus predicted that Israel would be ruled by the Gentiles, and that's just what happened. They were ruled by the Byzantines for 300 years, the Arabs for 400 years, the Crusaders for 200 years, the Muslims for 200 years, the Turks for 400 years, which takes us through the 18 and the 1900s. Okay, so here in the year 1800, here's a little history, there were 5,000 Jews living in Palestine. It wasn't even called Israel anymore. 5,000 Jews living in Palestine, spread out in tents. What are the chances of there being a real Israel and some sort of a rebuilt temple and some sort of a government making peace treaties? Uh, not likely. When you've got 5,000 Jews living in not even Israel. By 1867, even Mark Twain visited the Holy Land and said this, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Its borders are silent wilderness a shapeless ruin, vanished from the earth, inhabited by only birds of prey and skulking foxes. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. We're talking worse than Detroit. 1800. How are the end times going to really be fulfilled in a literal sense if that's all that's left? Well, then in 1920, there were 75,000 Jews living in Palestine. It's improvement. It's still only the population of Bolingbroke. But there's a bunch of them there. Chances of there being an independent Israel soon? Not great. But then in World War I, leading up to 1920, in World War I, in 1917, Great Britain took control of Israel from the Turks. 1917. And then Great Britain told Israel, we promise you we're going to give you part of the Holy Land back. And everyone was like, oh, what? There's going to be an Israel again? Well, just part of it. But yeah, we promise you we're going to give it back to you. This was like the first time there was like a glimmer of hope that there could even be an Israel. Well, then Great Britain balked under Arab pressure, recognizing that war was probably inevitable. They decided to try and make some Arab allies. And May 23rd, 1939, the British House of Commons revoked the pledge they made to Israel. Now, you know what? We rethought that. We're not going to give you any of the Holy Land back. In fact, what we decided to do is, uh, in the next 10 years, in 1949, we're going to turn over the entire Holy Land to the Arabs. So uh, we'll let you immigrate for the next five years, but then we're going to make Jewish immigration to the Holy Land illegal by 1944. And then by 1949, we're going to give the whole Holy Land to the Arabs. Ten years. Chances the Arabs would ever give it back? Anyone? Would you put that at about 0%? That if the Arabs got it all, and, and then they would ever just say, here you go, Israel, we love those guys. Take a... Never. Never. They'd rather die. So you got the 10-year countdown, and all of our hopes of seeing an Israel in our day would go away. Well, then what happened? That was 1939. Well, then World War II broke out, September of 1939. All the nations of the earth except a few would closed their doors and would not receive Jewish refugees trying to escape the Holocaust. Like, like Sweden and the Dominican Republic would like receive them. And many of them fled illegally, but formally the world closed its doors to them, which gave Adolf Hitler the ability to kill six million Jews. He killed two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe. The other third was homeless. A couple more years is all he needed. Chances of there being an Israel in our day? Six million die? The other third homeless? Arabs about to get the land? Chances of you seeing an Israel ever? Would you even give it 1%? World War II ended September 2nd, 1945. The world felt such grief and global sympathy for the Jews after they found out what happened, what they were complicit in. They started saying the Jews need a home. 
the Jews, looking around at the nations and realizing they would never find safe harbor anywhere else, said, we need a home. They need a home. We need a home. Great Britain involved the newly formed UN, and the UN decided in November of 1947 that they would give part of the original Holy Land back to Israel. Wait a minute, I thought by 1949 they'd never get it again. 1947, it was decided to give them part of it. And on May 14, 1948, are you ready for this? This is the biggest Bible thing that's ever happened in the world in 1900 years. Israel declared its independence. Here's a picture. Do you understand how huge this is? Israel hasn't had, other than a few blips in history, Israel hasn't had total self-government since 586 B.C. And in our day, boom, they're back. Not only are they back, but the United States endorses them, the USSR endorses them. During the Cold War, they agree on something. We both will endorse Israel together. How does this happen? How does this happen? They're back. Then one day later, like the ink is still drying on their Declaration of Independence, one day later, Israel is attacked from all sides by five Arab nations. Check this out. We've got a picture of it. You don't need to know the specifics, but every red box equals an army that came into Israel from all sides. They said, they said their goal, this was a war of annihilation. We're going to kill every Jew in the entire nation once and for all. Surround, I mean, like, would George Washington, a day after the Declaration of Independence was signed, if that's what he was facing, like, goodbye America, all right? <laughs> you'd love soccer. And you'd, yikes. No America. How did they survive this? They were outnumbered in population 40 to 1. And yet within eight months, Israel repelled the enemies and gained ground and shocked the world. Then again in 1967, an Arab army of 250,000 troops with 2,000 tanks, 700 aircraft prepared to invade again. Israel struck first. Within two hours, they took out the Egyptian Air Force. It took four days to win the tank battle for the Sinai Peninsula. On the way home, they destroyed Jordan's Air Force and half of Syria's Air Force. They recaptured Jerusalem. They only lost 800 Jews and they killed 12,000 Arabs. It took six days. We lose 800, you lose 12,000. Come and fight us again. Six days. They got Jerusalem back. So in 1967, Israel finally had control over Jerusalem again. What does that matter to you? What does that matter to you? Listen, do you understand that in 1800, there were 5,000 Jews in a place called Palestine? It wasn't even Israel. And now in 2013, in your day, there's 6 million Jews living in Israel controlling Jerusalem. Like, if the Antichrist is going to come and go into a temple and, and make a treaty with a nation called Israel, and like that, how could that happen? Like, now there isn't Israel. There isn't a temple yet, but there's talks and plans constantly of building one. Do you see how the stage is getting set for Bible things to happen soon? Do you see how we're the generation that's closer than ever to the end of the end? And like never before, we see what they thought would one day happen by faith. It's amazing. It's amazing. The end is already written. The world will love the Antichrist, and Israel will be right in the center. And here's the last point. For my fourth point, how do we get ready? Well, we have to get ready. Why do we have to get ready? Well, we have to get ready because, write this down, the world will be destroyed. I'm going to close on that and not explain it at all. <laughs> no, I'm actually going to explain it. The world will be destroyed. In verses 24 to 25, it says this, But in those days after that tribulation, so again, we get some sort of chronology here, like Jerusalem's really taking it hard, but even after that, it's going to get worse. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Hey, how bad is it going to get in the end of the end? How bad is it going to get? It's going to be terrible beyond description. What does it even mean that the sun stops shining? What does it even mean that the moon turns red or doesn't give its light? What does it mean that stars fall from the sky? The Bible in other places describes the end of the end as being horrific. The whole created order is messed up. 
And yes, it's symbolic for social and religious and political turmoil, but it's also symbolic for natural turmoil. The Bible says there's going to be great earthquakes, more stronger than any earthquake that's ever happened. The, the planet will crack apart. The Bible says 100-pound hailstones will fall from the sky. Poison water sources will take out entire populations. Drought and famine will plague the earth. The sun will scorch its people. The sea will be in an uproar. Millions, if not billions of people will die. How do we get ready for that? Do you know that the Bible says if God did nothing, if He simply allowed humanity to take its course and rise up against Him and poured out His judgment, nobody would survive? Total extinction. God, a loving God would never do that. I believe in a loving God. I believe in a mercy. Uh, Noah. Noah. The Noah's play set doesn't come with drowning people. Just little farm animals. Why do we not remember God has already allowed this to happen? And it will happen again. It says in verse 19, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never was worse than Noah. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Listen, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Wow. Reading on in verse 26, says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. That's Jesus. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. You know the reason why anyone survives the end of the end? Because God's got some people down there that he loves and he comes to save them. Otherwise, everyone dies. But because he looks down and he sees some people who he loves, his elect whom he's chosen, he comes back for them to save them and prevents humanity and natural disasters and even God's judgment from ending humanity entirely. Wow. Which leads to the question, well, okay, who's going to be there? Like, who are these elect? Where are they? And am I going to be there? Now, again, good people disagree about this question. Uh, let me just say this, if, if you are of the belief that there's going to be a rapture at the beginning of the tribulation and you know, you'll be taken up, that's fine. You can believe that. You've got a biblical case to believe that, but just be very careful because readiness, readiness for the end is not simply defined as, I'm ready to go at any time. Boom, zip, out of here. Beam me up, Scotty. You would agree that that's part of readiness, right? Wouldn't you agree that you should be ready for God to take you home at any time? Wouldn't you agree? Even through death, through death or through the return of Christ, you should have a surrendered posture where if he wants you to go today, you're not going to fight him on it. You know, you're, you're ready. You're ready to go. I'm ready to go now, now, now. Would you agree? That's biblical and healthy. But that's not all there is to being ready. You see? What else is described as being ready? Well, we have to be ready to preach the gospel to all nations. Right? We have to be ready to endure persecution. We have to be ready to detect false alarms. We have to be ready to notice events unfolding in history that fulfill Bible promises, and we have to get ready to prepare others for what's coming in the end. I would even add to it this. If you want to be ready, how do I get ready? How do I get ready? Okay, it's more than just, I'm ready to go now. Don't even have to worry about that. I would say this. Biblically, we have to be ready to be wrong. Jesus kept saying you don't know. No one knows. No one can be precisely sure. I don't know. All right? You, it might be a little sooner than you think. might be a little later than you think. And what's going to happen if you're wrong? Okay, hey, I'm ready to be wrong. If I'm wrong, bam, we're out of here. And I'm going to be screaming the loudest on the way up, okay? All right? I'm ready to be wrong. Are you ready if you're wrong? Are you ready if you're wrong? Are you humble enough to admit you might be wrong? That this is very confusing and no one exactly knows. See, some churches you go to, the pastor tells you one thing you have to believe in. If you don't believe his thing, you're stupid. All right? Maybe even not a believer. Okay? Uh, we're not going to do that here. But are you ready? Whatever you believe, you have to understand that the Bible teaches that there will be, God's people will be in the tribulation. Whether, whether you at least concede that it will be Jewish people who convert and believe the gospel they will definitely be there, all right? They're going to go out to the ends of the earth and share the gospel. The Bible seems to describe that they have a giant crowd of people who get saved, which means there's going to be the elect, the Jews who God loves, and at least their converts, whatever you call them, they're going to be there too. God's people will be right there when the earth is breaking apart. 
Now, we disagree on whether or not the church will be there. I think they will. Some think they won't, okay? But God's people will be there. Therefore, they have to get ready to be there when the world is destroyed. Man, the whole earth is going to fall apart. Like, how on earth? How can I get ready for that? Okay, we'll put a verse up on the screen. Actually, I need a volunteer, though. I need kind of a volunteer. Kevin, do you want to volunteer? Do you want to help me out? Let's give Kevin a big round of applause for coming on up here. Come on, Kevin. Now, you'll know that I picked you because you are a manly man. Doesn't he look tough? You could take me any day, okay? All right, but, but here, here's what's going to happen. You're, you're a strong man, right? But you've got to act something out for me, all right? And I'm going to read it. Don't look. I don't want you to peek. Okay, it says, In the end of the end, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. It says, People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the earth. Okay, that's you. I'd like you to look at what's going on out there and, and faint in fear. Go ahead. You got to do better than that. I want to hear a scream. You got to faint. Okay, stay down. Grown men fainting with fear of what's coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. All right, now here's my part. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power. And great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Mr. T here is passed out. I'm here saying, Yeah! That's you. That's God's people. Does that fill you with hope? Thank you very much. You were great. <laughs> Don't sit so close to the front next time. <laughs> Listen, whoever they are, whether you think it's us or them, these will be people who we are with in heaven forever. The world's going to be crumbling to dust, to pieces all around them. People are going to be fainting in terror. And it's God's people who are going to look up to the sky and say, yes, yes, it's time. That's hope. How, how can we live with that? Like, how can I know? It's because you know that he's coming for you. It's because you know the end of the world is not the end of the story. It's because you know that the ruin of this world will not ruin you. Jesus will return. He will deliver Israel. He will save his people. We're going to spend a whole day on the return of Christ next week. What happens? We're even going to cover, does this passage here in verse 27, is that the rapture? Is, is that the, we don't know? And we'll talk through that. But Jesus goes on in verse 28. Okay, can you imagine his disciples? They're like eating their lunch and they're all like frozen. He's like, calm down, calm down. Earthquakes and sickness is going to happen, but then freak out because everything's going to be destroyed. And, and they're like, I don't want to keep eating. And then, and then he does something interesting. He goes, from the fig tree, he gets all poetic. From the fig tree, <laughs> people are going to be passing out. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things pass away. Get this, heaven and earth will pass away. Did you hear that? Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Last week, we talked about earthquakes, famines, wars, and like, man, how could a loving God allow all these things? And you remember what Jesus said they were like? They were like labor pains. It's just one more contraction on the way to giving birth to new life forever. You know, what a way to redeem the suffering of this life. Here, he calls it spring. Spring. The end of the world. You know that song by R.E.M., The End of the World as We Know It? It's the end of the world as we know. It's all crashing down. It's like awful. and People are fainting. And Jesus is like, spring. We love spring, don't we? Don't we love spring? I mean, any of you make it through last winter with just a shovel and not a snowblower like me? Just a shovel. We love spring, right? We love spring. Were you checking the branches? Like, come on, spring. Come on. No more spring. Here's a picture. This is spring. It's just, it's just a little green spring. And uh, I love that. 
Jesus says when you see these things, spring, it's the beginning. It's not going to winter. It's not going to be desolate and barren and dead. It's, it's spring. It's going to lead to the season of abundant life, summer. That's where it's going. And know that the growth shows that it's going to lead to life, but the growth shows that it's the beginning and it's close. It's near. And I don't know about you, but when you look at what's going on in Israel, when you look at what's going on in our day, I see green. I'm not going to get all like, I'm not going to try. It's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not going to be that guy, okay? But if you're like, yeah, I'm looking at human history and current politics, and I'm not seeing nothing on that tree. I just see branch. I think you're not really looking. Because I see green. I see pretty significant green, spring-like things going on in the world in Israel. And Jesus says this generation won't pass away, which means it's going to be near. It's going to be a fast thing from when it starts. I don't know how fast the green is going to grow. Who knows? It could be 500 years. I don't know. It could be 50 years. I don't know. All I know is I'm seeing green. I'm seeing green. And Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. See, I mean, it goes from during the tribulation, run here, get out, take your coat, run, and then uh, heaven's going to go. No, nowhere left to run. You can't run from that. See, which is why what's going on in Jerusalem is paralleling what God's going to do to the earth. You know, do you understand that your time's going to run out? Humanity's time is going to run out. You don't have forever to make up your mind. You can run, hide, get there, and then the whole earth is going to pass away. No more running. No more deciding. Your time's going to run out. Do you know that you have a God whose patience runs out? You get a certain amount of time, then your time, your time is up. Humanity gets a certain amount of time, time is up. And the whole world will be destroyed. You're going to go. Either you'll die naturally or Jesus will come back. I don't know, but your end is coming. But he says, my words will never pass away. What, what does this world hang on? Not matter and light. Not energy and physical laws. This world hangs on promises made by a sovereign God. These promises are going to outlive the universe. I mean, the promises of Jesus aren't just like bulletproof. The promises of Christ are like, are like they're like apocalypse proof. And if you're not holding on to them when this whole world slips out from under you, you've got nothing. Everything you have in this life has an expiration date on it. Everything in this whole universe will disappear like a bubble that hits the grass. Pop. It's all gone. So believers, therefore, have nothing really to gain from this world. They'll all pass away. And we really have nothing to fear from this world because we're going to prevail and stand in glory. Jesus said last week, not a hair of your head will perish. So the question at the end is, are you ready? Are you ready? Jesus wants you to be ready. He says, I've told you all these things beforehand. My words will never pass away. Let me just close by saying this. You can come to this church many different times during the year and it's not going to be this intense. I'll be a lot more like patient and kind and, and you know, I'm, I'm a lot less direct and I'm like, you know, it takes time. But today I'm going to say this. This is a huge warning you just heard from the Bible. Like if you listen to this and you're like, eh, 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 whatever, and you just walk away, I don't even, and then, hey, listen, you've been warned. You have been warned this morning. You have heard what's coming of you, of humanity, what God is going to bring upon this. You have been warned. And if you're just like, eh, your judgment will be self-inflicted. But I hope you see here that God is looking down and seeing only two groups of people. Those who are rising up against him in rebellion. Yeah, thanks for sending your Messiah into the world through Israel. We'd rather there not be any of these people ever left, period. Thanks for nothing. Yeah, those people are going to go away forever. But then there's these people who he loves, who loves his son, who are going to heaven forever. Next week we'll hear that there's going to be two lines leading up to the judgment seat of Christ. One will go this way forever. One will go that way forever. You have time to decide now which way you're going. And I would just exhort you, the Bible says, today if you hear his voice, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but believe and be saved. I want to give you a chance to turn up to the God who loves you, who made you, who's coming back. I want to give you a chance to believe what you've heard today. Let's close our eyes and let's bow our heads and let's pray. Jesus, we're so humbled by this. And Father, we don't understand all of it, but generally speaking, everything that has been spoken today is true and is soon and is near. And Lord, thank you, those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, thank you, Lord, that when this life is at its absolute worst and humanity is facing extinction, we could stand up with our heads held high knowing our Redeemer is drawing near. Thank you, Jesus. Why would you do that? Why would you even come back for those who crucified you? But we thank you that you chose us and you love us. And Lord, I just pray and for those who came here today who were just, who got a rude awakening and they believe. And Lord, because of fear of coming judgment, they want to be made right with you. Father, my prayer is that you would meet with them here. And my prayer is that they would respond to what they heard in faith, to flee the wrath that is coming. Uh, Father, I just want to give them a chance to pray with me and to believe in faith what they heard today. And I just want to give them a chance to pray this to you, the God who loves them, the God who's returning. Praying something like this, Father in heaven, forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for my deception. Forgive me for my antagonism toward your people and your word and your church. Here and now, I humble myself in advance. Thank you for giving me this time. And I call upon Jesus as Savior and Lord. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Promise me eternity. I trust your promises, Lord, believing they will outlive this entire universe. I cling to them. I have no other hope. My hope is in Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are reaching out to you and turning to you. Give them peace that your eye is upon them, that though this world rises up against them, not a hair on their head will be touched. Thank you for these amazing promises, Lord. We look ahead to your glorious return. We pray this in your name.